question of his mercy lasts forever because, boy, do we need that reminder. <laughs> uh, if we uh, wonder, you know, if the Lord is going to forgive us, you know, for the hundredth time that we've come to him and asking for forgiveness, uh, by the time you've sung that, how many times? I didn't count. Uh, but I don't think you're going to have any, any doubts in your mind. God's mercy endures forever. Please turn to Matthew 28. read verses 16 through 20. Hear the word of God. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Father God, we look to you as we uh, page all through the scriptures and looking at uh, the uh, doctrine of baptism. I pray that uh, you would illumine our minds and enable us to uh, comprehend that which you have uh, ordained for us. Enable me to preach your word faithfully, and I just pray this would be a time of rejoicing in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Over the past several months, we've been looking at the uh, various uh, doctrines and practices of our, of our church uh, that are distinctives, foundations, uh, things that sometimes uh, set us apart, uh, and uh, we've come up to the topic of baptism, and this morning I thought I would try an experiment that I have never done before, and so I'm not sure if this is going to uh, be effective or not, but I thought what I would do is rather than preaching per se on the doctrine, trying to prove uh, our distinctives, infant baptism and uh, baptism by uh, sprinkling, I thought what I would do is dig behind the scenes as to some of the reasons why Christians look at the baptism passages and they see them in different ways. Uh, I thought I would demonstrate how our views of other doctrines affects our interpretation of the baptism passages. And you might look at these at, as being our presuppositions or our prior assumptions, but it really is amazing the degree to which our interpretations are affected by prior commitments. It is it, just an amazing thing. And hopefully, as we go through this exercise, it will help you to not get so frustrated at people who look at the same passages you're looking at and they come to totally different conclusions. Uh, we ought not to uh, get frustrated that, at them and, you know, that they, they can't see the facts. We get them all kinds of facts, you know, and we just keep shoveling more and more facts. We need to look at why they're interpreting the facts in different ways, sort of like the evolution-creation debate. We've got the same facts of the world out there. But, you know, there's a worldview that shapes how you fit those facts in, how you interpret them. And there are godly Christians and brilliant Christians on both sides of the baptism debate. And you might think, how in the world can they read the same passages I'm reading and not see what I'm seeing? You know, infant baptism is so clear, it just jumps off the page at me. And you know what? They're thinking the same thing. They're thinking, how in the world can those Presbyterians <laughs> believe in infant baptism? What is going on there? And... Um, our, our worldview shapes it. It really does. We're, if we assume that a given passage, for example, refers only to Israel, our mind is going to tend to weed out that passage's interpretation 
or, or application to, to ourselves. Um, or, as another example, if we read uh, the scriptures with assumptions of American individualism, we're going to come to totally different conclusions than if we hold to covenant solidarity of the family. Uh, or, as another example, if we think that Romans 6 is describing water baptism, we're going to come to different conclusions about what it is teaching than if we believe that it's talking about spirit baptism rather than water baptism. And you know, sometimes it's really subtle. Uh, sometimes it can just be uh, an influence from a negative association that we have had with some uh, doctrine. Uh, for example, I've had people testify to me before that uh, they knew a real jerk, you know, that held to Calvinism. And it, it just made them colored against the doctrine of Calvinism, it just gave a bad taste in their mouth, and it was only after they had accidentally looked through various scriptures and realized, wow, this is a beautiful doctrine, that they began to rejoice in it, but their whole attitude to the doctrine was colored by somebody that they had looked at. I remember the first argument that I used against infant baptism when I was in my uh, early 20s was that, hey, that's Roman Catholicism. You know, that's just a hangover that never got reformed, you know, uh, from Roman Catholicism. And my children would recognize that's uh, the fallacy of guilt by association. But even though it's a logical fallacy, boy, that's a powerful argument in many people's mind. It affects them emotionally. Oh, that's Roman Catholicism. Uh, how could you believe that? And I argued that the reformers did pretty well as far as they went, but there were some traditions that still needed reforming, and baptism was one of those. And because that was something that, uh, you know, did have an effect upon me, at least emotionally, I thought I'd at least comment on it. I'd at least comment on it. And my first comment is we don't prove any doctrine from church history. The Bible alone is infallible. Now, our opponents would say exactly the same thing on uh, this subject, but we need to examine our hearts to see the degree to which extra-biblical evidence carries weight with us. Because let me tell you, there are people on both sides of this debate that uh, put a lot more weight on, on, uh, uh, on history than they ought to. We can be guilty of that ourselves. The second comment I would make is that Roman Catholics believe a lot of right things. Uh, you know, they believe in the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, the holiness of God, the omniscience of God, and a hundred other doctrines that Baptists and Presbyterians, we all agree on, right? And so just because Roman Catholics believe it does not mean it's something that's wrong, and yet that's the implication of the statement when, when, when people make that. And it's not just Baptists that fall into that. We Presbyterians fall into that all the time as well. Uh, you know, the guilt by association. Uh, you know, many Presbyterians, oh, we don't kneel in prayer. Ro Roman Catholics do that. We don't raise our hands. Pentecostals do that. But you can't build doctrine and practice uh, based on guilt, avoiding guilt by association. In fact, sometimes that can really poison our minds where it influences how we look at biblical doctrine. There are hundreds of scriptures which talk about kneeling, raising hands, saying audible amens. And so this needs to be an encouragement. All of us need to watch out about this. Thirdly, I would point out it's actually not a Roman Catholic doctrine. They have changed the doctrine of infant baptism so much that uh, th there are a lot of differences between our evangelical viewpoint and theirs. But uh, I remember uh, when I uh, used that argument uh, against these Presbyterians that I had run across, I was shown some pictures from the catacombs in Rome. And these uh, dated back to the persecution under Nero. 
Uh, so it was when the apostles were still alive, you know, 64 A.D. And they showed pictures of baptism, and all of these pictures were showing water being poured on top of their heads. And uh, two or three pictures of Christ standing in the river, you know, about up to his calves here. And so there, he wasn't in the mud, and water being poured over his head. And I thought, boy, that's odd. And I didn't know quite what to, to do with it, but I just dismissed it and said, well, only the Bible's authoritative. Well, I still agree with that. But I was not being consistent then because what I was doing is I was trying to use extra biblical authority. Oh, that's Roman Catholicism. And then when it backfired, then falling back on the Bible alone. Okay? Uh, so many times this can be subtle. I had the same reaction when I discovered there was no evidence for anything other than infant baptism in church history prior to the Reformation, at least in terms of practice. In 180 AD, Irenaeus, who was taught by Polycarp, uh, who was the disciple of the Apostle John, so we're just one, one generation away from Christ. He spoke of baptism being applied, quote, to infants and little ones and children and youths and older persons, unquote. Another church father from the same era said, quote, the church has a tradition from the apostles to give baptism even to infants. It was pointed out to me that the first controversy in church history to ever arise over baptism was in 250 A.D., when the raging debate was on which day could the infant be baptized, did it have to be on the eighth day as in circumcision or could it be on Sunday? And at that ecumenical council, when they were debating this question, no one ever brought up the idea that infant baptism was inappropriate. They all believed in it and they said it traced back to the apostles. It had been something that had always been, that had always been uh, practiced. So their huge debate was on which day. Now, does that prove that infant baptism is true? No not any more than the opposite would be uh, true if there had been a lack of evidence in church history. What we use church history for is to illustrate biblical truth. For example, we would expect that if this is a biblical doctrine, that you'd expect at least some people who were baptizing their infants in early church history, right? And of course, we see that it was universally practiced. It doesn't demonstrate it, but it illustrates what the Scripture was talking about. And by the way, those early church fathers did not use extra biblical testimony. They pointed back to the Bible and they pointed back to apostolic authority. Now, a similar argument from extra biblical authority is used with lexicons and dictionaries. And both sides can play this game. You can find lexicons. I can point you to lexicons that show that it, uh, baptizo, the Greek word for baptism, baptizo or bapto never means immersion. You can find lexicons that say sometimes it means immersion. And I've got a whole shelf book full of Baptist books that say it always means immersion. In fact, I've got one book. It's called uh, Bap Baptizo Dip, Dip Only. And uh, the interesting thing about that book is it spends four pages discussing four biblical texts, only one of which I can see how it relates to their discussion of uh, mode. And then it spends 121 pages getting testimonies from experts as to what this, you know, what this uh, word means. But, you know, we play exactly the same game on the Presbyterian side. I've got a, a massive four-volume set by Dale that goes through every occurrence of the word bapto and baptizo in the ancient Greek, the religious Greek, secular Greek. And he demonstrates how there are many, many passages where it's absolutely impossible to be an immerse. And that he says there's no place where it can mean immerse. If you want a boring read, you know, you, you can't get to sleep at night. Uh, I've got the perfect boring read for you. 
Uh, it's that book. But the bottom line for me is this. How does the Bible use the term? You know, when it talks about Nebuchadnezzar being baptized with the dew of heaven, ah, that's significant to me. When uh, uh, Mark chapter 7 says couches and tables were baptized every day by the Pharisees for ritual purification, now New King James translates it, they purified them, but it's the word baptizo, okay? You need to ask yourself, no way to shake, did they really immerse couches and tables every day, you know, in ritual purification? Well, if you read Edersheim, the, the, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, authority who became converted to Christianity, he said they did it by sprinkling. Uh, or you look at Hebrews 9, verse 10, that speaks about various baptisms of the Old Testament and then proceeds to list these baptisms and the sprinkling of this, the sprinkling of that. I mean, those are the kinds of things where the terms are defined. The text that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading prompted the Ethiopian eunuch to say, okay, well, what hinders me from being baptized then? The then indicating there's something that they had been reading in Isaiah that prompted the question. Well, if you look in Isaiah, you discover that it says that the Messiah would sprinkle many Gentiles. It was a promise right there in Isaiah 52, verse 15, I think it is. And uh, last verse of, of Isaiah 52, you'll see it right there. And so he was reading along in this text, and that's the thing that prompted him to ask this question. Well, I'm a Gentile. I mean, I'm no longer excluded. I can be baptized. And he says, sure, if you believe with all your heart, uh, you may be baptized. And we have a, a tract on the, on the back table that goes through, I think it's by Lacey Rose, goes through numerous different scriptures that show that the Old and the New Testaments use uh, only the uh, sprinkling or pouring mode of baptism. Well, let me, let me just say, I was baptized by immersion, you know. <laughs> I was baptized by immersion, and we Presbyterians do accept all three modes of baptism. As regular, I didn't get rebaptized, but I try to talk people out of it. I've baptized one person by immersion because I just could not talk them out of it. They just felt in conscience they had to be baptized by immersion. But I try to talk people out of it because I do not believe it's the mode that was used in the Bible. Uh, so we've got that track back there, and it goes through all of the different uh, evidence. I'm not going to go through a pile of verses today, but my purpose is to show that it's so easy for us to be affected by extra-biblical things as well as by other doctrines. And what I want to do in the remainder of our time is to take several biblical themes and to show how a different understanding of those doctrines makes a big difference as to how you view baptism. Uh, Christian baptism. And hopefully it won't be too boring. Hopefully it'll be something that'll really uh, uh, re really be stimulating to your thinking and uh, you won't have to repeat uh, that your mercy has got to endure forever for Phil Kaiser uh, giving a long sermon. First doctrine that people look at quite differently is whether Old Testament baptisms have any relevance to the discussion. Now, many Baptists will insist they are utterly, utterly irrelevant to the discussion of New Testament baptisms. And you can see why. Because in the Old Testament, they baptized infants. And they baptized by sprinkling. And uh, we'll, we'll look at a few of those passages in a bit. But we say that these Old Testament baptisms are foundational to our understanding of how the early Jewish church would have understood uh, baptism. Your assumptions on that issue are automatically going to color how you see New Testament baptism. Why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. This is a passage that shows that before we can go on to other Christian doctrines, we've got to understand a few foundations. 
Hebrews chapter 6, and um, let's begin at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation, and I want you to notice now what is in this foundation, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and uh, even many Baptists will acknowledge that because of the plural here, and that there's only one baptism in the New Testament, because of the plural, he's probably talking about Old Testament baptisms, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And he's going to say an awful lot about baptism in the book of Hebrews, and then he's going to apply the Old Testament doctrines of baptisms to our to our own um, uh, 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 baptism later on. He's going to show how there are changes that have been made. For example, instead of the bazillion baptisms that they had back then, uh, we only have one baptism now. And what Paul later on, you know, he says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's going to show changes in the uh, substances that are used. For example, in the Old Testament, they baptized with clear, pure running water, but they also baptized with water mixed with blood or water mixed with the ashes of a heifer. In the New Testament, there's only pure water, and he, he even uses the word uh, 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 pure water uh, for, for the baptism. But he also is going to show the relationship between the Old and the New in Hebrews, and once you begin to understand that relationship, there's all kinds of puzzling passages that open up completely. For example, it helps to understand what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born of water. What does it mean? You know, water and of the Spirit. Must be born of water. It helps to explain why Isaiah was relevant to the discussion of baptism in Acts 8. It explains what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, when he speaks about the baptism for the dead. He was not talking about Mormon proxy baptism, you know, where you're baptized for dead ancestors in the past. Uh, no, every, every baptism was a baptism that was dealing with people who were cut off from the covenant, who were ritually impure. Why? They were in the land of the dead, the spiritually dead, and they were being baptized into. In, in fact, uh, that's one of the, the references. Uh, they spoke of that as being born, uh, of, born of water when they were being uh, brought into, into Judaism. And we'll deal with that a little bit more under point four. But I, I just want to look at mode, just one example. We can't go through everything in Hebrews. But if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll look at uh, the issue of the mode of baptism. Hebrews 9 and <clears throat> look at verse 10. Concerned only with foods and drinks various washings, and if you look in the margin there, you'll see it's literally various baptisms and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. And then he begins to list out what some of these various baptisms in the Old Testament were. If you look down at verse 13, you'll see the first one he lists. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Here's the first baptism, and it was a baptism that was done by sprinkling. And I should mention also that, that, that the Greek word for the purifying of the flesh is a word that's used of Christian baptism as well in Ephesians 5, verse 26, of the baptism of Cornelius and his household, Acts 11:19, 19, 
baptism of Christ's disciples performed, that John the Baptist performed. This is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 7.14. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay? It's a word of purification. And there are only two kinds of cleanness and uncleanness that you find in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. One is an internal cleanness where you've been regenerated, you've been changed by the Holy Spirit, and the other is a ritual outward purification. Or, or cleanness. It's dealing with, with baptism. So either spirit baptism or, or with water baptism. Those are the only two ways that the, that word is used. So here's the first ritual water baptism that he's talking about, and it was by sprinkling. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> he says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, <clears throat> according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Look down at verse 21. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of, of the ministry, uh, etc. Um, Baptists will frequently acknowledge, okay, that's the case. There has been some efforts to try to show immersion in the Old Testament, but more and more Baptists are coming to recognize this is a futile attempt, and they're recognizing, okay, in the Old Testament there were baptisms. For example, Kirk Wellam admits that the Old Testament sprinklings he's listing here are called baptisms, but he says this, however, Baptismos in Hebrews probably reflects Jewish as opposed to Christian usage and as such covers a wide range of washings that are no longer valid because of the reality of the new covenant. And my question is, now where did you learn about the new covenant? Isn't it in the book of Hebrews? Isn't that what Hebrews is all about? And what was the church made of in the first 20, 30 years? It was predominantly a Jewish church, right? They, these were Christians that he was talking about here. And uh, I think we need to ask, how would the Jews have understood the term baptismoi, or baptizo, or bapto? And in fact, in Hebrews 9 and 10, the writer says that the Old Testament rituals pointed forward to the New Testament ones. Okay? The Old Testament ones were patterned after the heavenly ones. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Okay? They were foreshadowing the things that would be in our own uh, era. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near, he's talking to us Christians here, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so he's finished talking about the Old Testament baptisms and he's applying it to our own baptism. Spirit baptism internally, which is the sprinkling of our consciences and uh, the purification of, uh, of the body. And so, obviously, in a short compass like this, we, we can't get into an analysis of all of the Old Testament passages dealing with baptism, but if you look in the appendix to my book that's on baptism that's out on the back table, Appendix B is titled, Infant Baptism Started with Moses, and it does some of that exegetical work for you. Now, this morning, what I want to point out is the debate is not so much on whether or not there was infant baptism in the Old Testament or whether the Old Testament baptized by sprinkling. The debate is, is that relevant? If people think, oh, that's utterly irrelevant, the Old Testament has no binding authority upon us even to define what baptism is like, then yeah, you... You, you're just going to look at New Testament passages. 
But if you believe that the New Testament is founded upon the Old and is defined by the Old, it's going to, again, flavor how you, how you think about it. Did you realize that the only Bible that the early church had for, what, 20 or so years was the Old Testament? They didn't have any New Testament scriptures. And Paul praises the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 for checking out everything that he said according to the scriptures. Well, if the Old Testament did not talk about baptism, how did they check out what he said? Right? Actually, in Acts uh, 26, verse 22, it says that Paul was, quote, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. And there are new, numerous New Testament passages that, that talk about baptism in light of the Old Testament. They base it upon Old Testament doctrine. Okay, another doctrine where there are two different views is the doctrine of circumcision. And the New Testament has clearly changed this. He's done away with all bloody rites. But there are Reformed Baptists who have in recent years been forced to the conclusion that Presbyterians are right on this, and they've published. There are many, many uh, Baptists now who say, yep, baptism is the New Testament equivalent to circumcision. And that Colossians 2, 11 and 12 calls baptism Christian circumcision, and various other passages say circumcision is imputed to us. Uh, for example, Baptist writer Paul K. Jewett says, the only conclusion we can reach is that the two signs as outward rites symbolize the same inner reality in Paul's thinking. Thus, circumcision may fairly be said to be the Old Testament counterpart of Christian baptism. So far, the Reformed argument in our judgment is biblical. In this sense, baptism, to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, occupies the place of circumcision in the New Testament, unquote. Uh, David Kingdon is a, a, another Baptist who's written a book saying you can't get around it. Baptism is the replacement of circumcision. But here's how they say uh, that they can still hold to a Baptist viewpoint. Where they disagree with us is on two issues. They say, first of all, faith was not required of everybody to receive circumcision in the Old Testament. And secondly, uh, they say that there is a movement in redemptive history away from the external to the internal, from the visible to the invisible, from earthly to heavenly, from fleshly to spiritual, and from corporate to individual. Now, I think it's interesting how they sneak in the corporate as being, you know, along with the fleshly and the earthly, etc., and the individualistic as being with the heavenly and the spiritual. But anyway, uh, Walter Chantry says, but the New Testament church has come of age. It is by way of contrast, inward, spiritual, and personal. And so he says, infant baptism is no longer appropriate because there needs to be an individualistic and a personal relationship. A Jewett says much the same. He says, this then is of capital significance. The temporal, earthly, typical elements of the old dispensation were dropped from the great house of salvation as scaffolding from the finished edifice. And so let me quickly analyze those two prior assumptions that they bring into the debate. First of all, was faith required in the Old Testament or was it not? Is it just a national symbol for people? They said, actually, that it's, it was both. A national symbol for all Jews, but it was also a spiritual symbol for spiritual Jews. And so let's examine that. Um, I devote a, a chapter to that issue of faith in, in, in the book, but let me just give you a few hints. In Romans 2, 28 through 29, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. He says you can't even claim to be a Jew if you're not regenerate and you do not have faith. That's why the Old Testament calls uh, apostate Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why Paul says not all Israel is Israel. Uh, that's why uh, Revelation uh, twice denies that unbelieving Jews were really Jews. In fact, he says the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not because they do not have faith. Uh, they were cut off from the covenant as far as God is concerned. This is why Romans 4, uh, verses 10 through 12, speaks of circumcision as being the sign of justification by faith. It's the sign of justification by faith every bit as much as baptism is the sign of justification by faith. Um, Abraham believed, therefore he was able to receive the sign of the covenant and apply it to his household, to his children. But apart from faith, the children of unbelievers were not supposed to be circumcised. Read uh, Joshua 5 sometime and you will discover that Joshua speaks of that generation as being Egypt. And he says when they got circumcised, the reproach of Egypt was rolled away from them. Now, why were they treated as Egypt? Well, it's because their parents had been unbelievers and had been cut off by God, and they died in the wilderness in unbelief, and God would not allow them to circumcise their children. It is only believers that have the, the privilege and the right of circumcising their children. Now, did Jews do it? Uh, yeah, just like Roman Catholics and many other un, you know, un, unbelievers will baptize their children. Uh, they did it as well, but that was not the intention of God. Uh, the language of faith connected with baptism is identical to that which is connected with circumcision. I think I put a, yes, I put a chart uh, in your outline uh, that you can study on your own that shows, again, the identity of those two signs in terms of, of their meaning. Now, what about this notion that circumcision signed and sealed both, you know, spiritual things to spiritual Jews and physical things to all Jews, whereas baptism only signs and seals spiritual and invisible and heavenly realities? Does that hold up? See, they say, you know, Deuteronomy 28, blessings, uh, land, health, all of that kind of thing. That was something that was just unique to Israel, and God has been narrowing things down to a more spiritual uh, depth. Has God really removed the corporate dimension of families and made everything an individualistic concern? Or to be snide, has God become an individualistic American, <laughs> you know, North American? Is inclusion of infants really simply part of the scaffolding or is it part of the building? And we would say it has to be part of the building because Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's not scaffolding. That's the building. That's the kingdom. He says they are part and parcel of the kingdom. And you can look that up in Luke 18, verse 15, where he, they brought the infants to him, and, and he said that about them. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says that infants continue to be set apart. Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but they now... They are holy. And so contrary to what Jewett and Kingdon say, the corporate covenant solidarity of the family continues to be present, and it's extended to the Gentiles. Acts 3, verse 25, says that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. John anticipates a time when, quote, all nations shall come and worship before God. And so there's an expansion from Jewish families and Jewish nation to all families and all nations. Uh, the Great Commission commands us to disciple all nations. And in fact, far from removing the outward 
uh, Old Testament blessings, the New Testament hugely expands upon every Old Testament blessing that is supposedly a part of the scaffolding. Uh, the promise of the land, that's not been done away with. It's expanded in Matthew 5, verse 5, to the meek shall inherit the earth. In fact, the whole new heavens and the new earth, right? 3 John 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Isaiah 42, verse 4 prophesies all nations will submit to God's laws. And eventually we're going to inherit new bodies, a new heavens and a new earth. And so to me, what is the new covenant about? It's not just about invisible realities. It's about inheriting, it's signing and sealing a whole universe to the Lord's people. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so uh, these people will admit baptism is the counterpart to circumcision. The only question is, who is right on the issue of faith, physical blessings, corporate nature of the family? Has that changed? And we would say, no, it hasn't changed. It's been expanded. Now, we're going to have to really hurry through some of these. But uh, another teaching where there are two different views is the baptism of John. Almost all Reformed people, not, not Reformed Baptists, but almost all Reformed people believe that John's baptism is the same as Christian baptism. Um, Christ's baptism is identified with ours, and yet he was baptized by John. Uh, the twelve disciples were baptized by John, and they were not rebaptized. Apollos was baptized with, by John. He was not rebaptized. Now, the one question is Acts chapter 19 is there appears to be a rebaptism of some people who actually didn't even believe what, the, uh, what John the Baptist had talked about, you know, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there, there are good questions on that, and John Calvin and others have various approaches to that. But, you know, far more important than that issue is the second one, and, I, uh, and, and it's this, that Reformed people say John the Baptist's baptism was specifically the proselyte baptism of the Jews. And... Baptists absolutely deny this. Uh, we believe it's the baptism of the dead or the baptism of Nida. And let me just explain 1 Corinthians 15, 19 uh, briefly to you and how that worked. Again, it's not proxy baptism. Every baptism was a baptism from the realm of the spiritually dead. And so anytime a person was cut off from the covenant, uh, whether he was a leper, if you were a leper, you were cut off from the covenant. You were considered as dead, right? Uh, if you were an apostate, or if you were a Gentile, uh, you had to receive this baptism. What happened with Gentiles is they made profession of faith, and all of the males were circumcised and baptized, but the females were only baptized, and yet their baptism was called a circumcision. And this is exactly the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 2. He says, you know, the people in the church there in Rome... They were only baptized, and yet he says it was, quote, counted as circumcision. It's the Greek word logizomai that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We don't really have it, but legally it is imputed to us. We literally do have spiritual circumcision, but there is a circumcision that is imputed to us. It's counted for us. Philippians 3.3 says, we are the circumcision. And so what happened when Jews apostate, became apostate, and they later on repented and they wanted to come back in, 
Well, you couldn't exactly recircumcise them. What they did is they would rebaptize them, and they would call that baptism a, a circumcision. And then they were admitted into the covenant. And so that was proselyte baptism. And so when John the Baptist called all of the Jews to get baptized, the Jews knew that God was saying, you're cut off from the covenant. You are pagans. And if you want to be a part of the new Israel that God is forming, if you want to be a part of the remnant, you have got to be baptized and incorporated into the covenant. Now the question comes, why do Baptists insist that John the Baptist's baptism could, could not have been Jewish proselyte baptism? Getting all tongue-tied here. Well, the reason is pretty obvious. Proselyte baptism always was a baptism that included the infants, the children of believing, whether it was believing Gentiles or believing Jews who came back in. It always included the, the family. What was offensive to the Pharisees about this was that John was claiming that they were apostates. They were cut off from the covenant. They were Gentiles. And they were saying, we're children of Abraham. He denied it. And he said, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. They knew exactly what John the Baptist was saying. And so again, if you see John's baptism as being Jewish proselyte baptism, well, it's just the most natural thing to see it as, and the same as the New Testament baptism, you see it as including the family. If you see New Testament baptism as being utterly different, a novelty, something new, that not something done by John the Baptist, or John the Baptist himself as being utterly new, then you can insulate yourself a little bit better from infant baptism. Another issue that good people differ on, and I have to emphasize, these are good people. These are godly people that God has wonderfully used. But uh, it's the issue of what is symbolized by water baptism. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. This is a, a passage that Baptists uh, turn to to show that we must be baptized by immersion because baptism must symbolize that we have died gone down into the grave and been risen up again. So the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christian. And it looks like that, doesn't it? Because when uh, I grew up a Baptist, and you know, you, you see them. They're, they're going down into the water, coming back up. Perfect symbolism, right, of death, burial, and resurrection. We won't get into the issue that uh, in Christ's day, they didn't bury people that way. Um, they didn't dig holes in the ground. They actually lifted them up into crevices in the, in the walls, you know, of the, the cliffs or different places, they were lifted up and put into, into uh, holes in the wall. But let's just assume they baptized exactly the same way that we do and uh, just work from there. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Baptist writer Kirk Wellam, after commenting on an identical phrase in Colossians 2.12, says, we find something similar in Romans 6, 3 through 6, where Paul sees the initiation rite of water baptism, not spirit baptism, unquote. And we Presbyterians say, no way to shake. There's not a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. This is not talking about what water baptism symbolizes. This is talking about what spirit baptism actually accomplishes in the life of the people. So let's read through the passage and see uh, which interpretation, water baptism or spirit baptism, makes more sense. And let's begin at verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, let, let me make another comment before we move on. I want you to notice that whatever baptism it is that Paul is talking about, everyone who is so baptized has these things happening to them. 
there are no exceptions. He says, as many, where are we? As many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus. And so if this is talking about what water baptism is doing, it is saying every single person who receives water baptism, at least by immersion, is saved. In my reading of this thing, it's saying these spiritual realities have happened to that person. If it's talking about spiritual baptism, well, then that makes sense. Everybody who has been baptized by the Spirit is going to have these things spiritually happening to them. So let's just read on. Verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And you can keep on reading down through the passage. To me, uh, as I read through that, it, it seems to me it makes a huge difference as to whether you believe that this is spirit baptism or water baptism. There are more and more Baptists who are coming to the conclusion that people are regenerated in water baptism because if they see water baptism here, you're almost forced to that conclusion. In fact, the seminary, Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary that I uh, went to, most of the faculty there and many of the students held to that position. I've got several Baptist books that have gone to that. Now, generally speaking, Baptists won't hold to that. They don't want to, and it's certainly not where we want to go in saying, you know, water baptism instantly saves a person. Uh, we don't believe that that is the case. But uh, we believe there's not a drop of water in this passage. Now, they will respond, yeah, Kaiser, don't get too fast here. Doesn't verse 5 say that we have been united together in the likeness of his death? Does not likeness imply symbolism? We say, no, not usually. Uh, sometimes it does, but not usually. What likeness implies is that it's similar but not identical. Isn't that right? It's similar but not identical. And our spiritual death and resurrection is similar to Christ, but it's not identical with His physical death and resurrection. We die because of our sinfulness. We die to our old life and rise to a new. And so it's like it, but it's not identical to it. But uh, in proof of this, all you have to do, make a note maybe in your margins, look at Colossians 2, 11 through 13, where exactly the same language is used with both baptism and circumcision. And it says, everyone who has been so circumcised has also died, been raised with Christ, etc. So uh, look that up and, and, and check it out uh, for yourself. Nobody would say that physical circumcision is a, a symbol or a pantomime of death, burial, and resurrection. But spiritual circumcision actually accomplishes those things, just like spiritual baptism does. Uh, let me read you a couple of other scriptures that use the same kind of language. Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here he's talking about putting them on like a garment. Now immersion doesn't symbolize putting on clothes, yet it's using exactly the same language. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. As many of you as were baptized have been planted with Christ. Okay, that's talking about either a seed or some people interpret it the crucifixion. Well, again, that's not 
uh, that's not symbolic. It's not a, a symbolic issue. Now, in contrast, we Presbyterians believe that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. Okay, so that's the debate. Does baptism, water baptism, symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of a Christian, or does it symbolize the baptism of the Holy Spirit? John the Baptist indicated that his baptism pointed forward to the baptism of spirit. With Jesus' own death, I mean, excuse me, with Jesus' own baptism, as soon as he is baptized with water, he is baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit comes down upon him like a dove. And so the question that we need to ask, if water baptism points to spirit baptism, and one is symbolic of the other, what was the mode of baptism that God used? And it's already hinted to in Christ's baptism, but I want you to turn with me to Acts 1, and we're going to look at how God defines the mode of baptism, and he does so over and over again. Acts chapter 1, we'll read first of all in verse 8, uh, where again he, he ties together water and spirit baptism. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, etc. Okay, you shall receive power. Oh, well, let's start at verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so he's, he's saying, what's going to happen to you at Pentecost? That's baptism. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, how is it done? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. We're not the actors. We're not the ones who move. The movement is all with the Holy Spirit. It is God's action upon them. Okay, take a look at chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now this is, uh, in part the fulfillment of the prophecy, they'd be baptized with fire. What, it, what happens? This fire comes down and it rests upon them. Okay, look down there at verse 17 where he quotes Joel as prophesying this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. What's mode that God uses? It's pouring. God pours the Spirit upon them. And by the way, this is just one prophecy, but if you take the trouble to look up all of the prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, of the, the prophets, about the Messiah baptizing, you will not find a single one that refers to immersion, but you will find over and over again that it speaks of the Spirit being poured out upon people, coming upon people. Many times the water and the Spirit are mentioned. Like in Ezekiel, it talks about sprinkling clean water upon Then being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Again, the mode is pouring. Uh, we'll skip over a few chapters to chapter 10. And uh, let's read the <clears throat> verses 44 through 48. We'll just tie it up with this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Again, the action is with the Spirit. It falls upon them. It's not the people falling into the water or into the Spirit. It's the Spirit falling upon them. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can any not be baptized who have received... Spirit, just as 
You see again how water baptism is tied with spirit. He, one symbolizes the other. And word forbid, can anyone forbid water is coluso, which means can anyone hold back water? And the, the meaning is the water is going to do the traveling. It's going to be coming to these people. And so again, you find a consistent usage in the scripture for God's mode of baptism being by sprinkling. Now, you can see, though, how your understanding of what baptism symbolizes is going to prejudice you to one mode or another. If I believed that baptism was supposed to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection, which I don't, but if I did believe that, I'd say, you know what? Immersion probably is the best method to symbolize that. But if I believe, as I do, that it's supposed to symbolize the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then I've got to look at how God baptized in the Holy Spirit and used the mode that he used. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, this brings up another difference of view, and that is the role that we play in salvation. Calvinism, see, we're Calvinists, right? Because we're biblicists. <laughs> That's bad. Calvinism sees regeneration as being 100% the work of God and we being passive. Now, with immersion, we're not passive at all. We're very active. We are moving. Whereas with Pouring and sprinkling, we are passive recipients. And it is the water that moves and that acts upon us. And it symbolizes, again, the fact we're saved not by works. We are saved by God's grace. Same is true of infant baptism. God's ordinary mode was that some ancestor way back would receive baptism as an adult. But from that time on, for generations to come, there wouldn't be any adult baptisms. They would all be infant baptisms. Why? Because from generation to generation, the faith is being passed on. They believe, they trust. They never know a time when they don't know and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God made infant baptism the normative baptism because he wanted to teach that we are not saved by works. We are saved by God's grace alone. We are receptive. We're born from above. Okay, now, your view on Calvinism versus Arminianism, again, could color how you think about this issue. Okay, going through these items quickly, which we haven't been doing, um, there are two views of the Old Testament as a whole. We hold a covenant theology, which believes there's a unity of Scripture, unity of the people of God. There's not two peoples, Israel and the church. The church, Israel was a part of the church. They're part of the bride of Christ. He doesn't have two brides. He's got one bride. And uh, we, we are a part of the Israel of God. Now, your view on that point is going to make a huge difference on what scriptures you believe apply. Point eight, pretty obvious. There are two views of the place of children in the church. And you know what? I think, I think that Baptists almost intuitively recognize that they need to do something with their children. Now, we believe... The Bible is only given one authorized way of dedicating our children to the Lord, and it's through baptism. But they do have baby dedications. They recognize that something needs to be done uh, with their children. And as one of the Baptist uh, guys that I was really close friends with up in Canada, he was asked, what's your theology of children? He says, you know, I really don't know. I've wrestled and wrestled with this. I don't want to say they're in the church, and I don't want to say that they're in the world. I guess they're kind of in a no-man's land. But we would say, nah, we praise the Lord that uh, God has included children in, in, the, in the church. Now, I have run across a few Reformed Baptists that treat their children as pagans until they prove otherwise. Um, and um, uh, yet yeah, most, most Baptists don't. Most Baptists act like their children are in the church. They teach their children to pray, to sing, to worship, to give offerings, to do everything else that uh, the church members do 
and they take their expressions of faith very seriously. See, God does not receive the worship of an unbeliever, of a pagan. Did you know that? The Bible says he doesn't listen to their prayers. He doesn't, their singing is an abomination. And yet, intuitively, they recognize, you know, we want our kids to sing, to pray, to worship. They want it to be a part of that. Now, we believe this is happily inconsistent. We are delighted that our Baptist brethren are inconsistent on, on, on this point. We say God takes ownership of our children. He places them into the covenant the moment that they are born, actually while they're in the womb, just as he dealt with Abraham's children and admitted them to the church. Over and over, his promises, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Every covenant God has ever made has included the children of believers. Every single covenant from Adam and on. Um, and I think it's so neat how God treats them as being in the church. When it's time for worship, Scripture says, gather the people together, the men and the women and the little ones. Okay, there's little ones in the congregation. Gather the, here's the definition of the congregation. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, and the nursing babes. That's Joel 2, verse 16. They saw the nursing babes as being in the congregation. Second uh, Chronicles 30, verse 18 says, Their little ones, their wives, their sons, their daughters, the whole congregation of them. Well, obviously, the congregation had little ones in them. Matthew 21, 16, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. They obviously accepted know, the, the worship of nursing babes. They didn't have children's church back then. When Paul addressed the children in Colossians and Ephesians, he treated them as being in the church. Read Colossians, who it's addressed to, then read how he addresses the children there. He's addressing them, not as pagans, he's addressing them as being in the church. And so your view of that is going to affect whether the sign of church membership should be applied to infants. Another issue on which there are two views, and we'll have to wrap up pretty soon here, is of who can be in the Abrahamic covenant. And I want you to turn with me to Galatians 3 because this is a key passage for Baptists uh, in which they say that you have to be a believing adult before you can come uh, into the Abrahamic uh, covenant. Or at least you have to be able to profess uh, outward faith before you can come into the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, and uh, let's begin at verse 26. He says, for you are all sons of God, notice this, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. By the way, let me back up a little bit. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, and he's saying there's neither Jew nor Greek. That was true in the Abrahamic covenant. He had Gentile slaves who were incorporated right into, into um, uh, the church. He says there's neither slave nor free. The slaves had an equal status with Abraham, even though they were slaves. But when it came to spiritual realities, they were equal with him. Uh, there's neither male nor female. Females had full status in the Abrahamic covenant. That's why believers today are called daughters of Sarah. So he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, let's just... Ignore for the moment the fact that every promise that was ever given to Abraham was to Abraham and his children and his seed. But they will say, here it is so clearly laid out, it is only believing adults, believing Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, males and females, who are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But the problem is they just haven't read far enough. Because 
we need to realize that chapter divisions and verse divisions are a modern invention. They weren't in the ancient Greek. And if you keep reading in chapter 4, he, he, he talks perfectly consistently with the Abrahamic promise, which is that this is going to pass on from generation to generation. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, and it's a Napion child, right from new birth on, uh, this child is considered to be an heir today just as he was considered to be an heir in Abraham's day. <clears throat> um, and it's true, you know, that this child is said to be no different than a slave. Uh, you know, all of the child's decisions are made for him. But he is still called an heir. In fact, it's hard for me to imagine how you could even be in the Abrahamic covenant without it including our children because every promise, as I said, that God gave to Abraham, he says, to you and to your children after you or to your descendants after you or to your seed. Every single promise. It's inconceivable to me that Baptists... Uh, would make this an individualistic covenant, except for the fact that I was a Baptist and I made it an individualistic covenant at one time. But, you know, now that I'm looking at it, it's all so clear. Back then it was all so clear in the opposite direction. But it really does make a difference how you're approaching, uh, uh, approaching these uh, subjects. And so in Acts 2, after calling for faith and repentance and baptism, and he explains that, he says, For the promise is to you and to your children. Next chapter, he once again applies the Abrahamic covenant to those who are being saved. And he says, For you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is no narrowing of the Abrahamic covenant from families down to individuals. No, it's an expansion to all of the families of the earth. And so far from proving individualistic narrowing, this passage proves that the family continues and the children continue to be heirs. Now, this brings up another issue on which you find different perspectives. Many people reject the idea, not only that infants can be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, but they reject the idea that baptism is specifically the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You know what? Galatians has been arguing exactly that, that baptism has replaced circumcision and that you cannot require circumcision any longer because then you're implying that these Gentile believers who have been baptized are not part of the covenant, that they're outside of the church. You're adding something then in order to make them come into the covenant. Take a look at verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 17. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. <clears throat> It's impossible for it to be annulled. Now, I'm not going to take the time to prove that this morning because of time constraints, but you could maybe do an exercise for yourself if you're wrestling through this question. Look up all of the New Testament passages that deal with baptism. Any, any relationship to baptism, one of the things you'll find is almost all of them are tied to the Abrahamic covenant. It, and this is huge. This is absolutely huge. Uh, because if we are in the Abrahamic covenant and if we are heirs to its promises and if every promise made to Abraham included his children, then the sign of the covenant must be consistent with that. Okay, John the Baptist tied his baptism to Abraham and being children of Abraham. Acts 2 tied the baptisms that were happening to Abraham and said, 
the promises to you and to your children. Acts 3 does the same thing, ties it directly to Abraham. And you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not Jewish families, but all the families. Why? Because the Abrahamic covenant continues to be present. Now, if that's true, if baptism is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, all you have to do is look back to Genesis chapter 17. You'll see that we are being unfaithful to the covenant if we do not baptize our children. If we do not apply the sign of the covenant to our children. Okay? I'm just going to skip over some of these points. Some of them are fairly obvious. And again, this sermon is not going to settle who is right on this debate because there's going to have to be a lot more thinking. But at least it will help you to maybe start thinking. And one thing worth thinking about is why every time households were baptized, when there was the faith of at least one adult, that it says that the whole household was baptized. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't have a household, and the Apostle Paul didn't, and the Ethiopian unit couldn't have a household, okay? But there are so many household baptisms. Lydia believes, and it says she and her whole household were, was baptized. It didn't say that her household believed. So she believed her whole household was baptized. We see the same is true. The households of Cornelius, the Philippian jailer, Crispus in Acts chapter 18, Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and because of the grammar, also Crispus and Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, what Baptists will say frequently is, well, these people must have had households that were grown up and that they were able to profess faith at that, at that point uh, of time. And, uh, you know, they say, you can't prove that there are any infants present. See, that's true. We can't prove that there were any infants present. But when so many baptisms were of household baptisms, and when the Old Testament baptism included infants, when John the Baptist baptism, if it was indeed proselyte baptism, clearly included infant baptisms, since God's promises and God's Abrahamic covenant of which we are all a part included our children, it seems to me the oddest thing to arbitrarily exclude them from the household baptisms that are in the New Testament. They didn't have birth control back then. To me, it just seems inconceivable that uh, there weren't at least some children in those households. Now, there's also the doctrine of the ability of infants. Many who do not believe in infant baptism hold to the concept of an age of accountability. You know, until you're six years old, you're not accountable for what your, your actions or whatever the age may be. But Scripture condemns infants for sin right from birth. Psalm 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. So God holds them accountable. He says they're sinners. And uh, they need parental training out of that sin right from birth on. They're in need of salvation. And we do believe that it's the faith of the adult that is key to the baptism of the children. But I find it fascinating that God's ordinary, most common means of operating, he doesn't always operate this way, but his most common means of operating is that our children grow up never knowing anything but a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a conversion experience. They've always trusted him. They've always believed in him. They've always put their, uh, their, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I give some examples in your outline, but one is that Timothy knew God and believed in him from the time he was a newborn, a brephos, according to 2 Timothy 3.15. In Psalm 22, David says, You are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I think that is the ordinary experience of most Christians. Now, some grow up to rebel against the Lord and only believe later. Some, you know, obviously there's some people who don't believe in the Lord. But, you know, if, if our expectation is uh, 
you know, th these kids are pagans, and until they prove otherwise, you know, we're going to treat them as that, it may become self-fulfilling prophecy. But if we lay claim to God's covenant, you say, God, you have promised to be a God to me and to my children after me. I believe you. I'm laying claim to that, and I'm going to raise my children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, then we should expect that it's going to be the most natural thing in the world for them to profess uh, faith in Christ. Let me list some of the different blessings that infants can experience, and I'm not going to bother to cover the differences on this point. But listen to this. Only the children of believers, this is not true of children of unbelievers, only the children of believers are said to be holy, 1 Corinthians 7.14, are said to be heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians 4.1, Acts 3.25, are said to have the promise of the Spirit, Acts 2.39, are said about for of such is the kingdom of heaven, Luke 18.15-16, are said to have angels assigned to them, Matthew 18.10, are said to have his blessings poured out upon them. Isaiah 44, 3, Isaiah 40, verse 11, are said to be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, as opposed to getting converted. Um, uh, although sometimes they are converted. But, uh, I, you know, John the Baptist, he was converted in the womb, wasn't he? And he was regenerate from the earliest times. Uh, we don't know when God's going to do it. But only the children of believers can have this statement said of them. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, Matthew 18, verse 5. Or can have the confidence of David that he would see his child in heaven, 2 Samuel 12, verse, verse 23. You simply do not see those kinds of statements with regard to the children of unbelievers. Now, I'm going to end uh, with 1 Corinthians 7.14, and you can correct that in your outlines. I accidentally put 2 Corinthians 7.14 in there. But this is a passage where the presuppositions of the Baptists, you can see it so strongly driving the exegesis. Um, the context is that Paul admonishes a believer not to divorce his or her unbelieving spouse, and he gives as his reason, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, ever since the famous writer John Gill, he was a Baptist writer, Baptists have tended to interpret this passage to mean this, that the faith of one of these married partners legitimized the marriage uh, of the unbeliever. And if it had not been for the fact that they were both unbelievers, then their marriage would not be legitimate and their children would be illegitimate. It says, otherwise your children would be unclean. They would say, otherwise your children would be illegitimate. Or in the older language, would be bastards. They would not have legitimate parents, but now they are holy. Now, that is a pretty standard interpretation if you look at, uh, you know, various Baptist uh, commentaries on that. And while it's an ingenious way to get around from the clear uh, reference to infant baptism in this passage, I do not think it holds water at all. First of all, the word for holy or sanctified, which are synonyms, uh, uh, the same word there, holy and sanctified, is never, ever used in the Scripture to mean legitimate marriage. Secondly, the children of unbelievers are never called illegitimate in the Scripture. To me, it's just amazing that they would think this. Their marriages are over and over considered lawful, while fornication of unbelieving people was considered unlawful. And thus, John the Baptist accused Herod of an unlawful second marriage. The Samaritan woman, you know, in John 4, she has five true husbands, but the, the, the husband she's living with now, Christ said, now he's not a true husband. So he's even in, in this unbelieving situation making a distinction between those who are legitimate husbands, those who are not legitimate husbands. Okay? 
And so I just do not think that argument holds water. Thirdly, there is only one word that's used to describe the unbelieving spouse, but there are two words that are used to describe the child. The unbeliever is said to be sanctified or set apart. Now, there's only two ways that you can be sanctified or said to be holy. One is external, where you are set apart to God's presence, like at the temple, or to God's working. There's some way in which you're set apart to God, and the other is internal. If you're internally holy, then you're saved. But that contradicts the context where he says in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So sanctification means being set apart to the moving and the acting of God with the hope of their future salvation. And so that's the way we treat our children. We believe that they are set apart with the hope of their salvation. Okay, God is working in their life right from the beginning. But there is another word that is used of infants uh, that is not used of the other person. And uh, that is the word uh, clean or unclean. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Now, there are only two ways, again, in the Scripture where anybody can be unclean or anybody can be clean. You can be internally cleansed by the Spirit of God or you can be externally cleansed by ceremonial ritual purification. I challenge you to find any other meaning to that word clean or unclean in the Scripture. And so... Uh, the word here, unclean, is actually used in the Scripture as a synonym for baptism. You could paraphrase it this way. Otherwise, your children would be unbaptized, but now they are set apart to God. That, it, it, it's a synonym. In fact, it's the word I mentioned earlier that's used in Ephesians for Christian baptism, John the Baptist baptism, uh, Christ's. I think there's a couple of other references that use this uh, to describe baptism. And so we've got an option here. Either we have to say that every child of one believer in Corinth was regenerate, or we have to say every child of um, a one believer there was baptized. I don't see any other way of interpreting that. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, uh, but now they are holy. Now, again, it would take far more time than I have this morning to settle this question, but I wanted you to at least begin the process of challenging your assumptions. What are the things that influence your interpretation and are you holding to correct doctrine on those influencing doctrines? Uh, we believe that infant baptism is a biblical mandate that's never been repealed by the New Testament in which the New Testament upholds in various ways. And if you have any questions on that, I would encourage you to pick up my booklet on, on, on baptism. But I personally rejoice, and I call upon you to rejoice in the fact that Christianity is a family religion. God receives the whole family, and to him be the glory. Amen. Uh, Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your covenant, that your promise is I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And Father, we bless you. We bless you for the ordinance of baptism, which is a visible and tangible encouragement to our faith that you do indeed stand by your promises and that we can indeed uh, lay claim to those that our children would grow up to embrace you and to follow after you. And Father, we, we desire that you would strengthen our faith in that regard. Help us to look to the promises of Scripture and uh, walking in those promises that we would uh, uh, set to our seal, to the uh, seal of baptism, that you are true. And Father, uh, may you receive all of the glory as we raise our children 
uh, re receive all of the glory because we recognize apart from you we cannot do it. And so, Father, receive our children. Receive uh, these families and bless them. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name.